0: The people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, who God had promised a land, the people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt and have gone through this deliverance uh, where God has led them out by his mighty hand of Egypt, these same people, these ones who uh, encountered the living God at Mount Sinai and were given his covenant. And then watched as a generation older than them, the adults, their parents, refused to enter the land. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years as their parents died off. And now the younger generation has finally crossed the Jordan River and entered into the land. And that's where we pick up with the river right behind them on um, the plains of Gilead, just near the city of Jericho. And it's worth remembering, as we read the first few verses of chapter 5, that they are officially in hostile territory, that God has promised to give them victory over their enemies, but they're now in the land of their enemies with the river at their back. Um, And by the time we get through chapter 6, they will have had their first battle with the city of Jericho. But what's interesting is chapter 5 opens, and there's some first things, some priorities. Uh, There's some initial preparedness measures that Israel needs to take before they can begin the war proper. And so notice in chapter 5, verse 1, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. There was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Now we saw last week a similar report from Rahab, this prostitute from inside the walls of the city of Jericho. And she said the same thing. She said, everybody here has lost the will to fight. Our hearts have melted because we've heard how God brought you out of Egypt. We've heard about your battles with King Og and King Sihon. And now the fact that one minute, this two million person population, I guess it would just be the the armies of these two million people for the two and a half tribes, but a very large group of people. One minute they're on the flooded, very wide, and rapid-moving Jordan River. They're on the other side, and now suddenly they're on this side. Okay. They know that it's impossible to ford, and they hear, probably through eyewitness account, of this miracle that God does that just like the Red Sea in the book of Exodus, the waters were parted and they walked through on dry land. They know that what they're facing here is not just a people group, not just another army. And so at this time, at this time, where they have kind of this pause because of the people being afraid and with the Jordan at their back and right before their first battle, verse 2, at this time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Okay? So the first thing they do in this preparatory passage is they get caught up on the sign of the covenant. All the way back with Abraham, God had said that this will be a sign of the covenant. This will mark you as my people. All of your men, at the days of eight, uh, eight days old, will be circumcised. They will remove part of the skin uh, of their foreskin. And that will be what sets you apart, what marks you as my people. But here, during this generation who's been raised as the wilderness, they didn't obey this command. They didn't continue this. And so the last time, that's why it says a second time here, the last time all of Israel was circumcised was right before or right after they left Egypt, before this wilderness wandering. And so now now it needs to be done for this new generation, the ones who are going to enter into the land, the ones who have agreed to the covenant as we saw in the book of Numbers, and who we'll see tonight, will renew the covenant uh, at Mount Ebal. But we need to see this for what it is, which is terrible military strategy. We know this to be the case because back in the book of Genesis, uh, the painfulness of circumcision is actually used as a ploy in warfare. You see, what happens uh, is a town by the name of Shechem has a a man living there who rapes a daughter of Jacob, of Israel. Uh, And her brothers come up with a plan to get back at them. And this is the plan. They say, let's convince them that the only way we can be together, trade, and uh, have an economy, and even intermarry is if they enter into the covenant as well so we'll tell them look all of your men if you're going to be one with us need to be circumcised and once they get everybody to agree while the men are still in pain and recovering then they attack and they wipe out the entire village Uh, a terribly dastardly move but here we see it's not the plot of an enemy here it's it's God's command here now Everybody needs to be circumcised. We will see over and over again tonight that the war Israel wages in is not any old war. And so one of the lessons Israel learns in the doing of this uh, is that, uh, that their relationship with God, what the Bible calls the covenant, takes priority. In a very serious sense, they can't take another step until this happens. And then, of course, related to that, they are learning right here that God is their safety, that he is their protection. And they're going to be, let's just say, constantly aware of that for the next few days as they're sitting in enemy territory, completely vulnerable. But nonetheless, it's commanded and it's done. And so, verse 3, Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel At Gibeath Haraloth, which literally means the hill of foreskins, just a reminder of how many men we're talking about. Verse 4, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all those who were born on the way in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation of the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Now that's for the most part the same summary I just gave you, but it's worth asking why it's here. Why do we need the reiteration in this context? And it's because it's trying to set up a contrast between the generation before and their disobedience, and this generation and their obedience, and so it starts with this reminder of the covenant in uh, in circumcision. And so we are told uh, we're told here in verse seven or at verse six, excuse me. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey so it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way verse 8 when the circumcision of the whole nation was finished they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed and the Lord said to Joshua today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you and so the name of that place is called Gilgal which sounds like the Hebrew word to roll away until this day okay But that's not all that needs to happen. It's not, okay, we've got that out of control, now charge. Uh, No, the next thing is uh, it's the season of Passover. Now, God's been orchestrating every move that Israel has made in the wilderness. We see this in the book of Numbers. Uh, And so the fact that they're arriving here is not incidental. It's not, oh, did anyone look on the calendar? We have the uh, the festival of Passover. It's clearly intentional. But once again, it's... Here, they're going to have a feast and a celebration of God's deliverance in enemy territory. I don't know of a passage that better reflects the words of the psalmist in Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, that psalm. David says there that he makes me a table in the presence of my enemies. Okay? And so David envisions as if God lays out a banquet for him right behind enemy lines. And he eats there and enjoys and there's pleasure and safety despite the hostility around them. And that's very much what's going on here. But we also need to remember what it is that Passover represents. Okay, Passover is a remembrance, it's a celebration of God bringing the people out of Egypt. And so the way that it works is um, under Moses' leadership. Moses has constantly demanded that Pharaoh... The king of Egypt released the Israelites. He refuses. God brings about plagues. And it comes to a head, to one final plague, the death of the firstborn. But what God tells Israel here is that everybody needs to take a lamb for each household, kill it, put their blood on the doorpost of their house, and then they're to eat this meal in celebration. But the blood will be something that this angel of death passes over that's where we get the name from and so those houses will be spared and so it's 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 a couple of things Um, what Israel celebrates in Passover is ultimately the exodus as a whole God's great miraculous bringing out of Egypt by his mighty hand And so you can see why that's pertinent for them to celebrate, to meditate on, to remember here and now, okay? They only exist as a people who are set free from their enemies because of what God did miraculously. And here, they're only going to receive the land by that same uh, arm of that powerful and mighty God. But there's another note uh, that is of interest here, and we find it in verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Okay. And so in contrast, verse 12, the manna ceased that day after they ate of the produce of the land and there was no longer any manna for the people of Israel. But they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And so 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God has miraculously provided for all of these people with manna from heaven. God just takes takes their need and meets it in this way that is clearly miraculous. But one of the things, especially in Deuteronomy, that's always celebrated about the land is that it's going to be a land of abundance, okay? Okay. And so here, Passover, uh, throughout the book of Numbers, all the way back into Exodus, operates as a, a pretty good benchmark of the calendar. It's the first month of the year on the 14th day. And so when we watch how time passes in the book of Numbers and in the book of Exodus, usually Passover helps us turn over the year. Okay. And so with this Passover, the 40th year of Israel's wandering comes to an official end, and their first year in the land begins, and they begin to eat of the land itself. Just obviously they haven't planted and harvested anything, they're just gleaning from what's around them, and this miraculous provision comes to an end. Okay. And so we see in this not just a remembrance of where they've come from and God's provision, but also another hard transition. From then to now, from wandering with your parents to entering into the promised land, already here they're tasting the first fruits of God's promises. Okay, so now we're ready to actually move into the land. And so first they enter in miraculously with the parting of the waters. Then they all stop and all the males are circumcised. Then they celebrate the feast of Passover. And now it turns to uh, the battle, and for, for the most part, from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 12, we get the battle portion of the book of Joshua. Now, we generally think of it of a, as a book about fighting, but it's worth pointing out that's uh, five chapters of a 24-chapter book. There's a lot more to Joshua than just this, but of course, these are the, steri- uh, the stories that we often are familiar with, Um, But notice how it initiates here in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Okay, so get the picture here. For some reason, Joshua is off by himself. He's probably up on a hillside looking over the valley of Jericho and at this big fortress city in the center of it and just thinking about what's to come. Maybe he's considering his strategy, but he's out there and he's personally, as the leader of Israel, he's on a scouting mission effectively. And suddenly he sees a man, a stranger, and the stranger has a drawn sword, okay? And so that kind of brings him to attention. And the question he asks is, are you for us or against us? Are you with the people of Israel or are you one of our enemies? Okay. Now listen to how this stranger responds in verse 14, and he said no. Okay. He gives him a two multiple choice question, are you with us or against us? And the response is just no. The categories that Joshua presents do not apply to this particular stranger, and so notice how he continues to respond. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, when we read the Bible in the Old Testament, it's originally written in Hebrew, and there's two different titles that are used for God, translated in English as Lord, okay? There's Adonai, Which can be used, it's just a term of respect, can be used of like, if you think of knights in shining shining armor and they talk about my Lord, that would be Adonai. And then there's Yahweh, this special covenant name for the God of Israel that God gives Moses in Exodus chapter 6 the name of God, the covenant name name of God, and that's also most of the time translated as Lord in our Bibles. The way you can tell the difference in most English Bibles is Adonai is always translated capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and Yahweh is translated capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Okay. They do that so we can know which Hebrew word lays behind it. So if you look at the text here, you'll see he says he's a commander of the army of the Lord, as in Jehovah, as in Yahweh. Okay. Now, that's a little bit striking if you're Joshua, because you're pretty sure if you're Joshua, you're the commander of the Lord's armies. right? That's your whole position. That's your job description. God-given. But here, most likely, uh, when this stranger says commander of the Lord's armies, he's not even talking about the people of Israel. One of the titles the Bible often uses uh, throughout the Old Testament for God is the Lord of hosts. Or if you have a really old translation, Lord Sabaoth. okay, uh, like the uh, Mighty Fortresses Our God hymn uses that title. But the, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord of hosts. The idea of hosts there is of armies. In fact, sometimes the best way to read it is Lord of heavenly hosts, in other words, of angelic armies. Okay? Sometimes Lord of hosts seems to uh, reference the stars in the sky, which is another connection we find in the Old Testament between angels and stars. Um, but effectively, here, this man introduces himself as the general of that army, of the angelic army, of the, of the supernatural army, of the spiritual army of God that's why it doesn't fit into either category it's still striking though right this is God's angelic general and when Joshua says are you for us or against us are you with us or not he still says no I think one of the significant things that we should understand from here is the question is never is is God on our side the question is always are we on God's side If we're going to talk about where allegiance is owed between these two people, it's one directional. And so it's effectively, let's get that straight out of the gate. And as we'll discover here, it's this commander of the Lord's armies who sets the agenda and the strategy for the battle that is to come. That's why he's here. Not to give his support to Joshua, but to give him marching orders. And that's very easily missed. We'll see why in just a second, but let's finish his conversation here. So he responds in verse 14, No, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Even that is so limited. Now I've come to do what? I'm here. That's all he says. I'm present. Now, notice how it continues here. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does the Lord say to his servant? Right response. Joshua understands he's outranked. In this situation and he responds by falling on his face he responds by worshiping and asking what are your marching orders verse 15 the commander of the lord's army said to joshua take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy and joshua did so okay now that probably sounds familiar if you've read the books leading up to the book of joshua you know that this sounds incredibly like how moses encounters god in the burning bush in the same way he's out alone in isolation and he comes upon something he doesn't understand in particular he sees a bush that's clearly on fire but not consumed in the fire and so it's green and healthy and in bloom and yet there's this flame coexisting in the in the in the bush and so he says I want a closer look and as he comes closer, this voice speaks to him and he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he gives him the same command. Take off your shoes for the place where you're standing is holy. Okay. What's the significance of taking off shoes, of this place being holy? It doesn't so much have to do with this particular parcel of land as it does with the active presence of God, Right? God is present in the burning bush, speaking to Moses, and so the shoes come off. And in the same way here, God is present, and that makes, effectively, this a temple meeting. As Joshua is standing here, suddenly he needs to remove his shoes because he's in the presence of divinity. Kind of like a few generations ago, we'd say we should remove your hat in the presence of a lady, right? Okay? And so here he's told this, And that should start to make us wonder what's really going on here. Because this isn't your usual angelic appearance. The Bible records a lot of appearances of angels. Think of um, uh, Samson's parents who see an angel, or Gideon who sees an angel, or Jacob who sees a whole group of angels, uh, or Hagar in the wilderness who encounters an angel. There's lots of stories about angelic presence But there are a handful of them that seem to be something more than that, where they have a mark of something more significant. So for example, we see that the way that Joshua responds to this person, this stranger, is to fall down before him in worship. Now we have other occasions where angels are on the scene and the same thing happens, but then something else happens take for example when John in the book of Revelation is giving a, being given a tour of the future with angelic tour guides and at one point he comes in contact with an angel that's so impressive and a vision that's so overwhelming just like Joshua here he falls down and begins to worship and the angel without missing us missing a second says no, no 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 stand up I'm a servant of God just like you the commander of the Lord's host here doesn't seem to have that problem does he He seems to take it. In fact, he presses it further and he says, you were in the presence of divinity. Take off your shoes. Okay. Some would suggest that what we have here is not just a representative of God, but God himself in presence. Okay. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we can understand that because that's who Jesus is. God come in the flesh. John's Gospel, in his introduction, puts it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And So effectively, he says, in the beginning, there was Jesus and God the Father. They are both God, but they were also together because they're both different, touching on this mysterious idea that the Bible presents that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but later on in chapter, chapter 1 verse 18 he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you keep reading and clearly he's talking about Jesus. What I want to draw your attention to in John chapter 1 is what he calls Jesus there. In the beginning was the word. Okay. He could have just said Jesus. Why does he say the word? Because the word becomes flesh and that is what makes God knowable. In fact, he says, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. No one has ever seen God and lived, but he who's from the very bosom of the father has come and made him known. And that verb there for made him known in the Greek is also a word term. It's he has exegeted him. He has preached him. He has proclaimed him, not just in the fact that Jesus taught people about God, but that his very person was the word the manifestation of God. In other words, Jesus has always been the manifestation of God. And so maybe what we have here is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. And there's a whole class of passages like this in the Old Testament that seem to fit this idea, and most of them refer to this title, the angel of the Lord, okay? Now, we could talk about all sorts of angels being the Lord's angels, But this one particular title, the angel of the Lord, it always has these above and beyond circumstances like we're reading here, okay? But either way, what we see very clearly is a final lesson that Joshua needs to learn, which is a reminder that this is God's battle, okay? That is so important for us today, reading the book of Joshua, because we can get very uncomfortable with the warfare, we see these battles, we see what some commentators call a holy war, we recognize that Israel has, uh, uh outsiders to this land and they come in and they conquer it. And we go, that doesn't sound right. And we're aware even of today of the ability people have to fight wars in the name of God and it makes us, rightly, uncomfortable. But one of the things you'll see as you study the book of Joshua is that it is so different Than these things. One of the things that we see is that it's God doing the fighting. Israel is involved, but remember, this is not a strategic and well trained standing army. These are people who are just the children of slaves. I mean, they just did a circumcision. Where did they get their knives? They made them out of rocks. Okay. This is hardly a big, impressive army with tanks and airplanes and these types of things. In fact, we'll discover consistently that they're not even allowed to have the, the highest level of technology known in that day no cavalry, no horses, no chariots. Right? They're constantly to be reminded in every battle they fight that God fights for them or not at all. Okay. On top of that, it's very limited. It's not like empire, it's not like England showing up in a place and saying, we claim this in the name of Spain. England wouldn't say that, Spain would, but it sounds better than England. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, here it's a very limited place. On top of that, we need to remember that God constantly communicates that what he does to the Canaanites is an act of his judgment. Yes, Israel is the vessel, Israel is the tool, in the same way that when Israel is in need of judgment, God is going to bring Assyria and Babylon and make them his tool of judgment. Even, uh, even devoted to destruction, this idea of harem, which we'll encounter later tonight, that everything was to be destroyed, is significant, because it means that Israel couldn't benefit from this war, just take the spoils. It was set apart for judgment. It was God's and God's alone. And we see another evidence of that tonight in the fact that this is going to be, I mean, just wait till we get to the Battle of Jericho, not your average battle, not your average warfare, okay? And so it's appropriate for us to be uncomfortable today with, uh, with warfare that people slap God's name on. And even from this passage, we can see a critique on this. We should be very careful as human beings as saying, God is on my side. But if God is just, and if, as we see in this story with the Canaanites, if God has been patient, because he tells Abraham 400 years before this, it's going to take some time. Your people are going to go into Egypt. They're going to be slaves for a long time, and then I will bring them out. And the reason he gives, he says, because the sins of the Canaanites are not yet full. He's patient. He's waiting for them to respond. In fact, just a few chapters ago, we found a Canaanite who wants to change her allegiance. Rahab, who says, I believe in your God. I know what's coming. And she comes into Israel and becomes not just a part of the nation of Israel, but a uh, part of the lineage that leads to Jesus. Rahab is one of Jesus's great, 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 etc., grandmothers. Okay. And so we got to be careful there, but here is the first sign that something is different. Now, Here's where I said things often go wrong when we read this story. In chapter 6, verse 1, we get to Jericho proper, and we start to get introduced to the stat- strategy. The problem is we don't connect it with what we just read. Okay, and so chapter 5 introduces the commander of the Lord's army, take off your shoes for this place is holy ground, and then look at chapter 6, 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in, and the Lord said to Joshua, Which, Lord? The one we were just talking about in chapter 5. You see, when we read our Bibles, both Old and New Testament, we need to remember that the authors of Scripture did not place chapters or verses in the books that they wrote. That if you were an Israelite reading the book of Joshua, even during the days of Jesus, you would have just had one entire scroll of the entire story with no separation or distinction whatsoever. Most of the divisions in our Bible were actually added in the 15th century by a printer, by a publisher, okay? So this is following the invention of the Gutenberg Press, and this guy wanted to put out better and more attractive Bibles to make more money, and he went, you know what would be helpful? A way to move around clearly, a reference system, Okay. And so he put the chapter divisions in our Bible that we still use to this day. Now, side note, that is not a bad thing. It's incredibly helpful that when you all gather here, I can say, turn to Joshua chapter five. It's incredibly helpful that when we memorize verses, we can reference them so people can look them up later, right? Those are good things. What they're bad at is operating as tools of interpretation, okay? What they're bad at is dividing the text in appropriate ways. In fact... Uh, it was always said about the editor in jest who put all these chapter divisions in that he must have done it on the back of a horse because sometimes we just have no idea what he's thinking. Okay? This is one of those occasions where the chapter break can really throw us because maybe you're like me and the most common way for you to read the Bible is a chapter at a time. And so you read about the commander of the Lord's host on Thursday and you open up with Jericho on Friday and you don't see the connection there. But really, this is a continuation of the conversation and the event that we were looking at at the end of chapter 5. And so we're told the problem. Jericho is a fortress city, and it's gated and locked. It's shut up inside and out. Nobody's coming out, nobody's getting in. It's in this context that the Lord lays out the strategy, verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor, You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So this is the strategy that's laid out. This is the plan. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to gather the army of Israel and I want you to gather seven priests with trumpets and then those who carry the ark and they're going to parade around the city once every day, as we'll find about, found out in a second, in total silence except for the blowing of trumpets. And then on the seventh day, take seven laps and then they'll blow the trumpets one last time and everybody in the army will shout and then this walled fortress is just going to collapse. It's just going to fall down, okay? Already, we should recognize that this is different than other things, okay? When Israel stood between a proverbial rock and a hard place, the rock being the Red Sea and the hard place being a quickly and very angrily pursuing Pharaoh with all of his chariots, God gives a similar plan. He says, Moses, stand still, And see the salvation of God. And then he says, I want you to hold out your staff. And that's when the waters are parted, right? It's different. It's unique. But more than that, this one is especially odd. Just consider a couple of things. Okay, first off, we don't know how close this is to the 14th of Nisan, the celebration of Passover. But if this is the 15th of Nisan through the rest of the week if the seven days of this war follow directly the festival of Passover which is a natural way to read this they're still in the middle of a festival the festival of unleavened bread which follows for exactly a week following Passover okay second thing that's very weird about this is remember that Israel has a very strict Sabbath law right on the Sabbath they are to do no work okay they're to limit how far they travel, they're to just rest. Their entire households have the day off, which was unique in the ancient world. But consider it here, okay? If the seventh day of battle here is the Sabbath, they do seven times as much work. And even if it's not, it's still a seven-day week. So one of these days that they go on their march, they go more than a Sabbath's journey walking around this city. It's out of tune with everything they know. In the book of Numbers, they're told to make horns out of silver, specifically for warfare. But the horns they use here are ram's horns. They're told, give them the shofar, give them the ram's horns. This is what they'll use. What's going on here? You see, one of the dangers of Israel is that they could mistakenly believe That the way God is going to give them deliverance is through them, even if it's through them doing the right thing. Even if God's just laid it out and they're just walking through the motions. Everything they know in this battle is wrong. Everything goes against the grain of what they've already been told. And then let's just talk about the obvious. That although we know you can do some pretty tremendous things with sound, leveling a city with the voices of soldiers is a pretty new one. It's a different thing. It's a novel thing. Imagine what it's like to be one of Israel's soldiers. And every day you just take a lap in silence around the city. You do it on the first day, and then on the second day. What are you thinking by the time the third day comes around? Remember, you're getting very acquainted with how well protected this city is. And I'm just going to assume... We don't have any reason to believe that Jericho takes out any sort of hostility on Israel. They probably walk around the city at a good enough distance that they're outside of the range of the bow, for example. But nonetheless, do you think they have an audience? Absolutely, right? Every day they're getting so acquainted with the armies of Jericho, they're probably recognizing faces by day five, right? Oh, look, he's brought his whole family out. I can see the resemblance, right? And then on the seventh day, They're going to take seven laps, and then at the sound of a trumpet, they're supposed to shout. And what is that shout? It's not like the yell when you return a really fast tennis serve, right? It's not just an ounce of power. They're not psyching themselves up. It's celebratory. There's another occasion later in the the book of 1 Samuel where Israel goes to war, and God says, as soon as you camp in front of the people... I expect you to have a worship concert and I want you to praise me for the victory I've already given you. Imagine what that's like. Here, you're in the middle of music and you're trying to sing in victory when you can see the enemy on the other end of the valley. Okay? These are tangible object lessons. They're opportunities for faith and they're reminders, hey, I'm going to do this, not you. And so it's set up here. The plan is given in verse 8. Just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpet with the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continuously. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout and then you shall shout. So he caused the ark to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now the other way we should probably think about this for a minute is what it's like for the inhabitants of Jericho. And honestly, it's hard to guess. It would be appropriate, I think, to see them as like the, the French soldiers in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, that this is just a big joke to them that it's just a mockery and the whole thing just seems silly to them. But I imagine because of Israel's reputation, there's a good deal of intrepidation and intimidation here. They don't know the strategy, right? They don't know there's a day seven. Israel just shows up and takes a lap and goes home. And then another day, and then another, and then on the seventh day, everybody can see that they're still walking. You know, I, I don't know what it would have been like But what I want to drive home is that it's not like anything they would have known. It's not like anything we would have known. The thing is, in the last moments of the warriors of Jericho's life, they are fully acquainted with the fact that they are fighting not against normal human beings here. They had heard of the God of Israel and their hearts melted like wax. I also think there's one other way we should think about this, okay? Because with Rahab, Rahab turns around and goes in another direction. Now, we'll find out later that God has hardened the hearts of the Canaanites. That's not going to happen. But it doesn't change the fact that here, for seven days, nothing happens. And that's seven days more of God's patience with Jericho. so they march around it they come home then verse 12 uh, sorry verse 14 the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp so they did for six days on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Okay. Notice what he doesn't say. Shout to intimidate the enemy. Right. For the Lord has given you the city. It's a victory shout, verse 17. And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now that's that idea of harem. That's the Hebrew word that stands behind that. And it's talked about extensively in Israel's warfare, that everything in the city, all of the soldiers, all of their property, the city itself is to be razed and to destroyed. Uh, but what the phrase actually means is given completely over. Okay? So devoted to destruction is a fine uh, description because that's exactly what's going to happen. But it's really devoted entirely to the Lord. Harem is very similar to what we find in Leviticus chapter 1 when it deals with the um, burnt offering. You see, in Israel's worship, they had different types of sacrifices, but one of the ones that was the most unique was the burnt offering, and it's called that because it was consumed entirely on the altar. Nothing was given to the priest. Nothing was eaten by the offerer, unlike the fellowship offering or the sin offering or the other four basic types. The burnt offering was wholly consumed on the altar completely consecrated. That's what this word harem, devoted, means here, given over completely. And so they're told the walls are going to fall, everything is devoted to destruction, only, it continues here in verse 17, Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when uh, when you've devoted them, You take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. That'll be significant in the next chapter. But, verse 19, all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Now, what makes those things different is not just that they're valuable, it's also that they're not easily destroyed, okay? And so they're all put into the treasury of God's temple, Okay, verse 20, so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. Okay, the idea there of flat is that it didn't fall towards the Israelites. It didn't fall into the city. It just collapsed like a a poorly cooked flan. It just fell flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him. Right? They didn't have to veer around, they didn't have to find the gates, they were wrapped around the city, the entire army, and they all just went straight into the city. They had it completely surrounded. And they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But... To the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out from there, the woman, and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver, gold, and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's house and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So for the second time in the book, we hear that phrase to this day. And it shows us here once again, the historical significance of the book, because whenever this book was put together and published, if you will, Rahab's family could still be found. Most likely, most commentators believe that this doesn't mean that Joshua, in the form that we're reading it, was written within this generation when Rahab was around, but just Rahab's descendants. Uh, that has to do with some of the other two this days, and so we'll touch on it later. Um, but if, as it's sometimes suggested, Joshua is written by Samuel, the prophet, as well as the book of Judges, and first and second Samuel. Okay? In the days of Samuel he's going, if you want to hear. About Rahab, who was a citizen of Jericho and became part of the people of Israel, her descendants are with us to this very day. Verse 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates." So the idea here is that this fortress city of Jericho was never to be rebuilt. And Joshua just speaks forth the curse. He says, if anyone seeks to, he will do it at the cost of his firstborn and at the cost of his youngest son. Now, like we've seen with Moses, like we've seen with Jacob, the patriarch, speaking over his sons, here what Joshua does isn't just express a wish or a threat, but actually says something prophetic. And so we find in 1 Kings chapter 16, during the reign of King Ahab, that a man from Bethel, which is just down the road, by the name of Heel, Heel of Bethel, seeks to rebuild Jericho. And it just tells us in the same words of these prophecies that he did so laying the foundation stone at the cost of his firstborn and finishing the capstone at the cost of his younger son. Now we still don't know exactly what that means. We do know in the ancient world that some people practiced city dedications that involved child sacrifice. And so it may just be that basically here you have this man living in Israel, and he's effectively just become like the people that God has driven out, and he's rebuilt the city at the same cost that the city would have been built the first time. Or it may be um, that this is talking about God's actual judgment and that both of his sons died along the way in fulfillment to the words of Joshua. If you want a closer look, that's in 1 Kings 16, 34. So, verse 27, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Okay, so their very first battle, completely victorious. No loss of life. Everything accomplished by the miraculous hand of God. Now, the battles that follow are different. This strategy can't be applied to Ai or to Gibeoth or any of the other places they fight. We don't see the same strategy at the same time. And this seems significant to me because we could pick a lot of things that God does in the Bible and say the same thing. When we look at the miracles of Elijah, there's commonalities, but there's differences. When you look at the ministry of Jesus... He sometimes deals people with the same condition, a blind man and a blind man, and he deals with it different. So at this one, he just touches the eyes of the blind man and says, be healed. Another one, he makes mud with his fingers and puts it in the man's eyes. It's different. It's diverse. We see that across the way. And I think one of the things that God always wants us to be careful of is once again, trusting in the strategy instead of the strategist. Why does God do this with seven days and seven laps on the seventh day and seven trumpets held by seven priests? I don't know. Is there symbolic significance to it? Maybe. But it's also clearly and visibly unique. In Isaiah, it it speaks of when Jesus comes and it says that he shall be called wonderful counselor, Mighty, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The word there for counselor is not like therapist. It's a military term for military strategy. God is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is the wonderful strategist, the divine strategist. And we are so prone as human beings to mistake success for the ritual itself, to reduce God down to sorcery and just go, okay, you know, I mean, we're so superstitious, right? We think, what socks was I wearing when I won? the Super Bowl last time, and now those are my lucky socks, right? That's who we are as human beings. And So God constantly changes things up, even with the battles of Israel, so they they do not forget that the power is not in the tool or in the plan, but in the God who brings them victory. I think that's important for us to remember because sometimes God does significant things in our life, things that are just so visibly and tangibly him. He speaks to us, And we know that he's spoken to us because it's so unique. And sometimes that becomes our new method of discerning God's will. And we go, okay, where was I last time? What was I doing? How did I pray last time? God always works diversely in our life. And so we always need to be open-handed in his leadership, in the way that he works, in his plans. I was speaking with a friend this week. And he's facing some hard things. God was really moving, there was a plan in place, things were really exciting, and now it's all crumbled apart. And to be really honest, it's not his fault. It's circumstances outside of his control and um, the behavior of others that have just hindered this moving forward, even though the prospects were really good and exciting, even though it seemed like what he was designed for and it was satisfying to him. And so I was talking to him about what's next, because all he sees right now is a closed door and no open door. And he said, there's just no way I can guess this happening that doesn't feel like a step backwards, like a setback. And he said, every time I've ever been led by God, I've just done what was right in front of me. I've never had to take a leap out into the dark and just see what happens. And I said, maybe that's intentional. Maybe here God wants to broaden you out and do something new. That's how it's going to be with the people of Israel over the course of their history. Same God, the God who never changes, the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, who all honors and values his word. But the methods change so that we trust in the one behind the methods. So, their first battle against Jericho. This is right in the center of the land of Israel, what we're going to see is the, the general strategy of warfare here is uh, like the, the idiomatic saying we have, divide and conquer. They just cut right through the middle of the land, breaking the back of all of the allegiance of these Canaanites, and then they work north, and then they work south. So Jericho is the first city, and then the next one is Ai, which is deeper into the land beyond Jericho, further to the west. Um, but... Verse 1 of chapter 7, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Okay, we know that up front before what happens next. Israel does not. We even know who the culprit is, a man named Achan. We even know his great-great-great-grandfather's name. Israel does not. If we're going to rightly read what happens in Ai, we have to understand that it's effectively a story of secret sin. One man in the entire army of Israel doesn't follow through on the harem, doesn't devote things to the Lord. And so we have to read what, next, what happens next in that context. And so verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So just like we saw with Jericho, he sends out a couple of spies they get to walking around this place, A.I., and they go, oh, this is a lot less of a big deal. This is just nothing on Jericho. In fact, if we really know where A.I. was, uh, and based on what A.I. even means, which means ruin, it's actually probably not a rebuilt city, but the remnants of an already sacked city that people are living in, okay? And so they look at this, And they just go, we don't even need everybody this time, guys. We can give a few people a day off. Just 3,000 soldiers should be sufficient. Okay? Now, already there, we should be suspicious that something is wrong here because where is the pattern breaking down? It's not in the fact that they don't walk around AI seven times. That's irrelevant. The pattern breaks down in the fact that here, God isn't calling the shots. There's no commander of the Lord's army. It's the spies who come and suggest the strategy. And Joshua, to his shame, just goes, sounds good. And they move forward. On top of that, notice the overconfidence here. Clearly, they're jazzed about the victory they've just had in Jericho. An entire fortress city taken down. Not a man lost. So here, they're like, look, we can coast. We don't have to try so hard. This is going to be easy. Boy. The Bible says it many different ways. In the New Testament, it says, let he who thinks he stand takes heed lest he fall. In Proverbs, it says, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Right? Because we are human beings, because we are finite and fallible, there are very few poor decisions we can make more than overconfidence. To think, oh yeah, I've got this now. I've got this all figured out. When I was a teenager, I was sitting on the couch eating a plate of spaghetti and my mother offered me a napkin. Everyone else in the living room eating spaghetti had a napkin. And I arrogantly said, only babies need bibs. And then I dumped the entire plate on myself within the next two minutes. Okay. You probably have a similar story. In fact, you probably have stories that don't end in just a stained t-shirt and a laughing family, but actual real loss. Embarrassment, all sorts of things. That seems to best describe what Joshua does here. He's just overconfident. And so notice what happens. Verse 4 So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. There's no, no positive statement. They don't even start well. They just get up there. And then as soon as the men of Ai come out yelling and screaming with weapons raised, they just turn tail and run. And along the way, verse 5, the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people were melted and became as water. And so they go up overconfident. They're unaware of this whole Achan situation. Uh, They get there, and then they're instantly running, and because they're totally exposed in the retreat, 36 men die. Now, that's not a large number in the casualties of war. But remember that this is supposed to be God's victory. And here, they don't get what they expect to find. In fact, notice how it describes what happens to them. It says, the people's hearts melted and became as water. That's the description of the Canaanites. That's the fear that was in their hearts because of what God has done. Now the fight's just gone out of them. And so Joshua, verse 6, he tore his clothes, which is a a very eastern way of expressing mourning. He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, which is another expression of deep mourning and humility. So they're just laying in the tabernacle before the ark, And then he begins to pray, verse 7. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. And so notice here, first, and this is good, Joshua suddenly sees things in context again. What does he say? God, if you're not with us, we're dead. It's over. That's very different than 3,000 men will do yesterday right? But the second thing he says is, where were you? His greatest concern here is that God isn't upholding his promises. And I will tell you this, that as much as we often feel like it's the case, every time God makes a covenant, we are the ones who are breaking it. You should just assume you're wrong. But nonetheless, what he does here is not necessarily sinful. He's not accusing God. It's the same questions that Moses asked. It's the same questions that the psalmist asked. But he basically says, Lord, where were you? Verse 8, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut out our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? He doesn't just express concern for his own safety here, but also for God's reputation. Something, no doubt, he learned from his mentor, Moses, who does the same thing. He says, what will the people think of you, God? You said you were going to give us the land, and then we die off. And they go, well, that shows that their God wasn't the true God, that their God isn't a powerful God. So he says, what about your reputation? Notice how God responds in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. There's that term harem there. They didn't rightly handle the goods of Jericho that were devoted to destruction. And so now Israel's become devoted to destruction. Okay? And so Joshua here is whining and asking God, where are you? And he says, stop praying. Get up off your face. You want to know what's wrong? He says, Israel has sinned. Now notice that. He doesn't go right to the heart here and say, Achan has sinned. There is a corporate reality here. And that's something we need to recognize because even when we as moderns at best go, yes, there really is evil in the world. There's such a thing as good and bad. We tend to think of it in very individualistic terms and we hate the idea We hate the idea that we would be held accountable for the sins of others. But the thing we have to recognize is that humans do not exist apart from community. We just don't. We uh, in the church right now are kind of rediscovering this, and so there's a lot of talk about striving for community and coming out of isolation. But we should think deeper than that. We're not coming out of isolation. Your entire life is built on the back of the work of other people. The words you use, you didn't come up with the language of English, you were taught it. The fact that you survived past the age of 10, you have no, no grounds to say, I did that for myself. Even when we take a person in isolation like Robinson Crusoe, how is it that he survives because of the individual spirit of man? No, because he's already been civilized. So he knows how to make a house, right? It's, it's before we can ever rediscover what community is supposed to be, we have to recognize how interconnected life is. And the truth is, we make decisions as individuals and they impact the people around us. That is always true. I don't think there's a greater lie we tell ourselves or those around us than I'm not hurting anybody. But this is especially true when we talk about things at the broad community level, like consider a nation. Okay? We're all very fully acquainted with the fact that if our president goes to war, so do we. We may like that, we may not like that, but it doesn't change the fact that that's how connected we are. Okay? And as much as we might like to distance ourselves from particular leaders and whether we say not my president this time around or last time around, he's still your president and his decisions will absolutely impact your life. And here it's a little bit different. Aiken's not Joshua. He's not a leader leading the people astray. He's just one guy who does something quietly and alone without anybody knowing that he's convinced he got away with. But it leads here to the death of 36 people. That's important to keep in mind because the consequence here is going to be severe. But if you forget the cost of life, it's going to seem like an overreaction. Okay. And so here he just says, Israel has sinned. It's singular, it's corporate, it's individual, it's community, it's all together, um, even though it's one person. And so he says... Uh, That's why you couldn't stand before your enemies. Now, notice that. Here, basically, this sin in the camp has broken down a semi unrelated issue. It's not just that Achan is now having nightmares or a guilt complex. There's actual broader consequences here. And that's another thing that we don't always recognize about sin. So Here we've got, we've got a people in covenant with God. Very clear and unique circumstances. And that always needs to be kept in mind, right? If one of you has stolen something and are hiding it under your pillow, it may not be costing soldiers' lives on the front lines of Afghanistan. That's not what I'm saying tonight. But... I think we will be surprised to find how often, if we could see the big picture, how often the things we think are hidden and harmless are not hidden and are not harmless. I'll give you just one illustration, and it's only suggestive. But I've always thought it's interesting that when Abraham uh, finds himself with a famine in the land of Israel, and he goes first to Egypt and then to the Philistines to get food, and both times, he comes up with the same idea. He says, okay, Sarah, I know you're tremendously beautiful. And so the rulers of these places, they're going to go, you know what? I'd like her as a wife. Her husband's in the way. They're going to just take out, my, take out uh, me, and, and that's it for me. So just do me this one favor. Tell everybody we're only brother and sister. Okay? Now, that's not only horrible in terms of the fact that it doesn't do anything for Sarah right? Is she any less at risk? Is their marriage any less at risk? No, it's just about his own skin. But more important, don't forget the promises that God has made Abraham. Abraham, through you and your wife, through your descendants, I'm going to bring about the nation of Israel. I'm going to bring about the Messiah. He puts the whole thing at risk. It's not a good situation. God interferes and intervenes both times and protects Sarah uh, and, and Abraham and, and everything is fine. But here's what's interesting. Years and years later, after Abraham is dead, Isaac is traveling during a famine, and he does the same thing. He says, Becca, I love you, but will you just do this one thing? Now, I could be wrong, but I've always assumed that's not a story Isaac heard around the fire, when his dad was like, you know, there was this one time when we were traveling, right? I would assume that's a secret he took to his grave. But nonetheless, the pattern is there. And so there's this serious thing, and God draws Joshua's attention. He says, get up to address it, and then this is what happens. Verse 13, get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate for yourselves tomorrow. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. (laughs) Okay, and so he takes the rest of the day and he says they're all to consecrate themselves. Now, we know what this means because of the book of Leviticus. Basically, they all need to go through ritual cleansing. They need to abstain from sexual activity. It basically means God's going to be present and active tomorrow in a significant way. And so it should be like you're going to the tabernacle. That's the idea here. Okay, but also notice that this isn't instantaneous. There's a time of preparation. Okay, for all of Israel, this is probably shocking, but how is it for Achan? I'm trying so hard not to make a pun. I think I'm going to succeed. But he's obviously not feeling good about this. Right? Think of the intimidation. He knows he's the only one. Him and his family are the only ones who know that God is absolutely right and knows where the treasure is buried because it's under his bed. So all of Israel consecrates, verse 14. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. Okay, so the idea of casting lots here is that they're going to use some sort of random implementation like the drawing of straws or the rolling of dice, and it's going to be one of the 12 tribes, and then it continues on. Your tribe uh, shall cast, come near by clans, and then the clans that the Lord takes shall come near by households and in the households by man, and then by another man. And he who's taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, all that he has because he's transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he's done an outrageous thing in Israel. Now, two things here. First off, notice all of this is laid out the day before. It's not just consecrate because there's sin in the camp. Tomorrow we're going to take lots, and it's gonna be one tribe, then it's gonna be one clan, then it's gonna be one family, and then it's gonna be the man himself. And then the second thing I want you to notice here um, is that it says here that this is a problem because they have transgressed the covenant of their Lord. Now, Israel's history is going to be full of people transgressing the covenant. In fact, we should, if you're familiar with the Bible, we should assume this isn't the only sin of Israel in this context. This one is particularly serious because of the circumstances Here they're at war. This city was to be devoted. That isn't, by the way, true of all the cities. It wasn't true of AI. But Jericho, it was specifically stated, inaugural warfare set the standard. This is only for God. Um, But second, this is like week one of the history of the people of Israel. And that's significant as well. In fact, this is something that we find repeated in other places in the Bible. Consider the early book of Acts. Consider the new church in Jerusalem. Jesus comes, he dies, he's resurrected, he ascends, he tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem till I send the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 2, the Spirit falls, everybody's filled with the Spirit, they're speaking in tongues, all the people hear them praising God, Peter stands up, he preaches, and that day 3,000 people become Christians. Bam, the first church of Jerusalem. Then a little bit later, 5,000 people respond. And so now they've got this huge church of brand new Christians. Nobody in the world's been a Christian longer than a couple of years, right? And then they're overwhelmed in their hearts with gratitude for what God has done and compassion for one another. And all of those who have extra property sell them off and they redistribute it so that nobody has any needs. And here comes a man and his wife by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And they come, and they sell off their property. And they come, and they present. First, Ananias comes, and he hands Peter this bag, and he says, we've sold all of our property. Here is the total of it. We want you to redistribute it, okay? And and Peter says, is this really everything that you sold the property for? And Ananias says, yep, that's the whole dime. And he drops dead. And as he's being carried out the back door, his corpse... His wife comes through the front door and Peter goes, hey, your husband just dropped by and he gave me this money. Is this everything you sold the property for? And she follows in his footsteps and says, yep, that's everything. And she drops dead. Now, be clear here. It's not because they were unwilling to share their stuff. It's because they wanted the credit for sharing everything. Nowhere in the early book of Acts do we find any sort of requirement or compulsion involved in this. It was a free will offering but they want to be known as giving everything. It's hypocrisy. Now, they're not the last hypocrites in the history of the Christian church, are they? They're not even the last hypocrites in the book of Acts, but only they are judged in this way. Why? Because you have a baby church, just like you have a baby nation here. There's a significance in the fact that it's a beginning, and that makes it especially serious because it's precedent-setting. And any of you who have ever experienced severe hypocrisy in your life know that it's contagious and it spreads. And even when sin is hidden like sin, it has a tendency to do the same. Because sooner or later, people are going to talk about it. And if it's just nothing's happened, there's no consequence, they're going to go, oh, yeah, it's no big deal, you know, and then it incentivizes other people to do it. And pretty soon, you have Israel that's effectively Canaan twice over. Okay. And so we have to keep all of those things in mind. But we also need to recognize the timeline here. What doesn't Achan do? He doesn't fess up. Until God draws attention, just turns the magnification on the microscope till it's focused just on one person. I honestly believe, because the Bible declares that God is unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that we see this with God all the time. And that the reason there's a whole day taken. And the reason that there's a whole method is at any point, Achan can come forward and own up. And I can't say that things would have been different, but that's clearly God's heart here. It reminds me of when Jesus is in the garden, and he knows that Judas has a plan to betray him. He's even spoken to his face and sent him out, and he says, I know what you have planned, go and do it. And so he comes in the garden, and he comes up to Jesus like a friend and kisses him, and he says, Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Remember, this is Jesus. There's no venom in that statement. It's a true and honest question. It's one last opportunity. And Judas doesn't take it. And here, Achan has all of this opportunity to come forward. God's tremendous patience. All of the pressure of building reality of what's coming. And he doesn't respond. So, verse 16, Joshua rose early in the morning. And he brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clans of the Zerites were taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give the glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about Achan here is that you can draw a direct comparison between him and Adam in the garden. And here we see it's not Achan who comes forward and says, I've done something bad. It needs to be set right. It's God who comes looking for him. Okay. And the second thing is, what does God ask Adam in the garden? Adam, where are you? And then he says, well, I was hiding because I was naked and ashamed. And he says, why were you ashamed? Did you eat of the tree? In the same way Joshua here operating as God's representative says, confess, come clean, tell us the whole story. And even here, listen to what he says. He says, verse 20, Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold wearing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them, and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath and so notice here, he says, I saw, I desired, and I took. Interestingly enough, those are the same words that are used for Eve in the Garden of Eden. She saw that the tree was desirable and beautiful. She took the fruit and she ate it. And so here we are in kind of a new garden in humanity 2.0 in Israel, and we find sin in the same place playing out in the same way, plaguing the same people. Okay. Now notice he tells them where it's buried and notice what happens in verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. Why do they have to go looking? I was thinking about this and I realized that sometimes, sometimes people confess to things for bad reasons to cover up for someone else, to handle other things. And it's just intriguing to me here that Israel does their due diligence. It's not just a confession. It's also the evidence, okay? I watch a lot of Father Brown, the BBC show based on G.K. Chesterton's detective stories, and it's full of people who confess to sins they didn't commit, okay? In Israel, that's not enough. They go looking for the evidence, but they find it just as it's so, and so verse 23, they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. They laid them down before the Lord, and Joshua said, Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had they brought them up to the valley of Achor and Joshua said why did you bring trouble on us the Lord brings trouble on you today and all of Israel stoned him with stones they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. So they take not just Achan, but his entire family and all of his belongings, and they stone the family members, himself included, and they burn everything together, and then they build this big pile of stones over them as a memorial. And there's no getting around how serious that is. But don't forget how serious the sin was. This little hidden sin cost the lives of 36 people, okay? And we go, but why does the family die? Now, the Old Testament is clear that the sons are not punished for the sins of the fathers. The prophets say that. Deuteronomy says that. Why are these ones culpable? Because they knew, right? Remember, they're living in a tent. And even if they were living in a house, this is the Middle East. Everybody lives in the same room. There's no privacy in the ancient world. They all know about this and they did nothing. They were culpable, okay? They're, they're part of it, but there's no getting around how serious this is. I'm not trying to downplay the intensity of this judgment. It is intense. And one of the things that we should recognize there is that sin is serious. When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, when Jesus says if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out because it'd be better for you to go into heaven with one eye than into hell with both of them working properly. At the very least, what he's saying is, treat sin as dangerous because it is, right? And so they take care of this. They do the right thing. I think one last thing I want to point out here is just because Achan undergoes a physical or temporal judgment doesn't mean that he's damned. I think it's very, very probable that Achan and his entire family, who have confessed and owned up to their sin, they're saved. They're part of Israel in destination, but there's still consequences for sin. That's why Galatians says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. If we sow to corruption, we will reap death, and if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap life. God is not mocked, Paul says. But I still think there's a significance in in the availability of forgiveness, even in the midst of judgment. All right, let's just finish chapter eight here. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and rise and go up to Ai. See, I've given it into your hand, the king of Ai and the people of his city and his land, and you'll do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. So everything is set right here. God's not bearing a grudge. There's no further consequences. Things are restored, and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I'm with you. I'm going to give you the city of Ai. And verse 2, you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Now, there's something a little somber in that statement, isn't it? Because if Achan had just been a little bit more patient, God had good things for Israel. He had plans. There was spoil. There were things to come, but he couldn't wait. He wanted it now. Verse 3, so Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. Notice that, all the fighting men this time. Uh, And we're told here, he chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. That's a lot bigger than 3,000, isn't it? And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us just as before, we shall flee before them. They will come out after us until we've drawn them away from the city. They'll say, They're fleeing from us just as before. So we'll flee before them, and then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. As soon as you've taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord see, I've commanded to you. Now, verse 8 there is really important, okay? When it says, you shall do according to the word of the Lord, it's probably cluing us in there that even this strategy is God's strategy, okay? The only other possibility there is that they were supposed to burn the city with fire, and that's what they were to do according to the Lord, but as we'll see here, this is not the final culminating fire. This is a strategic step in battle fire, okay? So verse 9, Joshua sent them out and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. So here's his strategy. He says, okay, the majority of our armies are going to be hiding behind the city of Ai and they're going to lie in wait. And then I'm going to take a smaller force and we're going to go right up to the front door tomorrow morning. And as soon as they come out, just like the other day, we're going to start running from them. And that's going to draw them out. And when they come out after us, we want you to come into the city and light it on fire, doing two things, okay? One is giving them no place of retreat, and second is now pincer move, right, between these two armies, they're stuck. There's no going forward, there's no going backwards, so they start the fire, and then they come up on the army, and so this is how it plays out in verse 10. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, and he and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. Now that's significant because of warfare geography, okay? That means that there's a slope and then up to Ai, which is very common for cities. Jerusalem's built in the same way. So what's going to happen? Israel's going to flee and start coming up the other slope, and it's going to be the people of Ai who are down here when the other army of Israel comes in behind them. That means they'll have the low ground and be trapped on both sides from the high ground. Okay, It's a severe disadvantage. And so it's mentioned here. Um, and so, uh, so verse 13, they stationed the forces at the main encampment north of the city. Its rearguard was west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. As soon as the king of Ai saw this, He and the people and the men in the city hurried and went out early to the appointed place towards Ereba to meet Israel in battle, but he did not know there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all of Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel." Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that's in your hand towards Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Now there we should hear another echo of Moses' ministry. At an earlier battle, one that Joshua was actually in the front lines of, Moses was standing on a mountain holding out his staff, and as long as he held up the staff, Israel prevailed, and when his arms started to droop, they started to lose, and so, uh, so Caleb and another man come and hold up his arms, right? Here, it's not... staff, like it was with Moses, it's a spear, but the significance is the same. It's another reminder that the victory is the Lord's. And so Joshua holds out his spear. Uh, He holds it out towards the city, verse 19. The men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. As soon as he stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. They hurried and set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled in the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. Recognize also the psychological reality of that smoke rising behind them, okay? of their entire city going up in flames and realizing, oh, this isn't the entire army of Israel. They came out the first time with 3,000, and they run away. Joshua comes with a slightly bigger army of 5,000, and they run away, and there's another 25,000 behind them. They're totally overwhelmed. So verse 21, The when Joshua and all of Israel saw the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai, and others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped, but the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness uh, where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. Now that's a helpful number, okay? Because when we read the word city in the Old Testament, we shouldn't be thinking of Seattle or New York or L.A., okay? We're not told the size of Jericho. We know a little bit about the layout of it, and you should just recognize that we're not talking about a ginormous walled city, but a fortress. And same with Ai here. This is 12,000 people living in the land, okay, Uh, living in this area. Verse 26, Joshua did not draw back his hand, which he stretched out the javelin until he devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction, harem. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city of Israel was took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. Hanging out a defeated king... Out in the open was common practice ancient worldwide. It was just a normal warfare thing. It was, um, it was a proclamation of victory and a warning to other enemies. But notice, Israel, once sun goes down, the body comes down. Why? Because Deuteronomy required that nobody would be left hanging, because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And I want you to notice the dignity here, that that even applies to the body of, an, of a, a, not just an enemy king, but a truly wicked king, okay, of a truly wicked leader, but there's still a significance of dignity. Why? Because all people, including the Canaanites, are created in the image of God, okay? And so desecrating a corpse is significant, even when it's an enemy king. Finally, here in verse 30, we see Joshua doing what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 27, was once they entered into the land to get to this place, uh, of Mount Ebal, and to read over the entirety of the law and set up a memorial and renew the covenant inside the promised land. Verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it's written in the book of the law of Moses an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Burn offerings consumed totally, peace offerings consumed with the people. It's like a picnic with God. Okay? Verse 32, and there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which they had written. So they had these large stones, they bleached them white, probably with lime or something similar, and then they inscribe on them all the words of the book of Deuteronomy. And so this is a lasting memorial, kind of like our memorial for those who have died in war, where you have all the names on the stone, similar to that. And, verse 33, all of Israel, sojourners as well as native-born, with their elders, officers, judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And so what would happen here is the blessings and cursings of late Deuteronomy would be read, and uh, those on one side would say, so be it, let him be cursed. And then with the blessings, so be it, let him be blessed, okay? And so they're going through this thing just as they were told to, renewing and reading through the covenant collectively as a nation. Verse 34, afterward he read all the words of the law, the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curse, according to all that's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Now, there's more fighting to be had here, but they've had the first fruits of victory. They know that God is going to give them the day, and so they're already renewing the covenant and celebrating what God has done. Uh, So far, so good, until we pick up in chapter 9. Let's uh, stop here for the night and pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we recognize that the New Testament is not afraid to evoke warfare imagery to talk about our own life. As the pastor of Moody Memorial said last decade, uh, the Christian life is closer to a battleground than a playground. And so Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces. He says our weapons of warfare are not physical, but are strong and capable in pulling down strongholds. In Ephesians, it tells us to take up the whole armor of God with the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. And so I pray, God, that we would learn the same lesson that Israel needed to learn, that the battle belongs to you, that victory comes through obedience to you, uh, that we as a church uh, are called to wage war on your behalf and fight it in the way that you called us to fight with you as the victor. I pray, Lord, if there's any place where the battle is raging hot in our own lives, where we're struggling with temptation or opposition, uh, or where there are ideologies and strongholds in other people's lives, uh, that we would really learn how to fight, as Paul says and commands Timothy to be, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word and for this time, and we ask that you would go with us and before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.